if you give an individual the ability to have a direct conversation with a generative AI, you give up control of what might happen. And you're at the mercy of OpenAI or Bard or whomever. Hey, I'm Esther. And I'm Sean. I write about AI news here at Tech Target in Massachusetts. And I edit Esther's stories. We're here to talk with tech experts about everything AI and ChatGPT. And don't forget about Google Bard. Whether it's who's ahead in the generative AI race, the metaverse, digital twins, or even the latest in autonomous vehicles, we've got it covered. Right, Sean? Yep, we've got it covered. Today, our podcast guest is Michael McCormick, Senior Vice President of Product and Engineering at Oyster a vendor of a global employment platform that uses AI and other technologies to enable organizations to hire and pay people uh, in 180 countries around the world, more or less. Um, Michael did long stints at Salesforce and Oracle in engineering roles. And long ago, he was a professional musician and maybe still is, um, at least with his kids. So, so glad to have you with us, uh, Michael. And um, I guess I, I would start as, this is an easy question. You've handled this a million times. Like, how did your company get its name? And two part question, how do you use it? And tell us how you use AI technology just in general in your platform. Oyster's name came from the uh, phrase, the world is your oyster. Uh, definitely reflecting this idea that we're a platform for global employment and access to the best employees in the world uh, is the best way to succeed. Um, and uh, what was the second part of the question? Sorry. Oh, like how do you use, what's your approach to using AI technology in, you know, throughout your, your main platform and your business? That's a good question. And it really goes to this question about how many kinds of AI are there? What What do we mean when we say AI? Um, Oyster's platform is very much, and our services are very much geared toward right and wrong answers and dealing with extremely complicated situations in employment uh, with different laws, different regulations across all the countries in the world. And because of that, um, we're very, very reliant on technology that will allow us to take an individual situation apply that to a set of rules and come out with a definitive and accurate answer about what's the best thing to do to hire them, to pay them, uh, to care for them um, throughout the life cycle as an employee. And from an AI standpoint, that means that the very basic part of our technology is a traditional, um, with a new twist on it, but a traditional rules engine that can take all of the structured employment and compliance knowledge around the world and guide people through their employment experience and always give them the right advice, the right information so they can stay compliant and be competitively employed. So it is a, a rules engine AI. Um, with all of the new things that are happening now with generative AI, there's a whole host of opportunities that we're looking at in terms of how we can interface with this 100% accurate uh, knowledge base in a conversational way. So how can uh, a, an end user, a customer, find out what the best thing to do is in their situation 
by asking a natural language question, how can we get the absolute correct answer internally and then generate something that's a natural language answer for them to understand so we can essentially solve that human in the middle problem that generative AI has and still have all of the great benefits of conversational interfaces. Um, I love what you said about the world being an oyster. I thought that was very interesting. Um, And what you said about, um, I guess, the question you asked, like what kind of AI are we talking about? But moving on a little bit to what would you say is the distributor workforce? Um, What are its advantage and how does your technology make it possible? That's a great question. Um, Obviously, when you hire globally, you by definition end up with a distributed workforce. And it's absolutely true that the past um, two and a half years especially have really transformed the workplace with the pandemic accelerating the move to remote and distributed work. So companies just aren't required anymore to hire within commuting distance of their offices so they can seek talent around the world and get more diverse and resilient organizations put together. Um, And even though there certainly are major companies wrestling right now with return to office decisions, uh, remote work really has become a permanent part of the workforce. And that's a really great thing for a few reasons. Um, It's a competitive advantage. Uh, It provides, because it provides employers with a more diverse, resilient team, thanks thanks to the giant talent pool that you suddenly have access to. It also, from the employee standpoint, gives them a lot more flexibility that allows them to avoid burnout and be more productive. Uh, And even more importantly, it's providing more opportunities for people outside of major cities and especially people in emerging markets. Um, And Oyster specifically, what we do is, you know, we're really focused on walking the walk uh, and talking the talk about distributed work. So we ourselves employ people uh, in a fully remote distributed setup. We have over 60 countries represented in our employee base of 600 plus employees. And so everything that we have in place to solve the problem of how do you work together? How do you work together across time zones? What technology platforms do you use? How do you manage your projects? How do you communicate with each other cross-culturally, cross-language, all of those kinds of things, um, and all of the tooling you need to make all of that work, um, we're practicing that. So when we work with our customers, we can help them more than just transactionally. You know, I want to hire somebody quick in this country and that's the end of our relationship. With us, it's a much more strategic partnership. We can advise and help them succeed uh, long after the initial hiring is done. Can I ask this? Um, How much does technology help in overcoming like language and cultural uh, barriers? Because I get how you use, you guys use uh, a lot of asynchronous communication too to uh, coordinate work projects across geographic and time, different time zones. But what about, um, you know, I just thought of this. I mean, language, do you use a real-time interpreter, uh, you know, um, program or? No, we don't do that. Um, it is true that English is the the lingua franca of, of technology and knowledge work in general across the world. And so English is the default. But there is something really interesting, I think, about asynchronous working modes, which is when you have anyone who has an extra cognitive task 
or overhead in terms of how they communicate if it were in person, such as being shy or such as being someone who is more introverted or analytical and doesn't want to speak until they've figured everything out. Those people generally, when you don't have a distributed setup, uh, get talked over and don't get represented as well. And so this applies to them as well as anyone for whom English is not a first language. Um, our asynchronous working practices give people the time and the space to construct their thoughts and put their thoughts into uh, whatever format they can best express them. Uh, and so they don't get talked over, they don't get run over, and the nuances of what they are saying, there can be time to address those. Um, we additionally do have a, a workplace function, and workplace being the new word for HR, especially here. Um, we have a very intentional group uh, and function inside our organization around helping understand cultural contexts and uh, helping train people on the best practices for how to communicate asynchronously. How do you write in a clear way? How do you make it so the back and forth for asynchronous written communication for complex subjects and negotiations can happen with the minimum amount of under misunderstanding, the best intentions, and the fewest number of round trips. So it's a, it's a skill that needs to be built. Uh, there's no perfect answer yet. Everyone is still trying to figure this out, uh, but that's definitely at the top of the list of what we do internally and intentionally as a company. What you said about like when people are not like shy, like I can totally relate to that because sometimes it might seem like someone is just not contributing, but they're just like trying to process exactly what is going on um, before they like make a contribution. So yeah, that's a, you're, you're, you might think you're shy, but you're an aggressive reporter. <laughs> I'm totally shy yeah. until I need to not be. <laughs> so you work against, like, I think, um, Esther, you work against type. Like, you uh, pur purposely become not unshy. When yeah, you yeah. It, it's, a, it's a struggle. <laughs> <laughs> it was for me, too, when I was starting out as a reporter. But, can, Michael, can you talk a little bit more about the technology you use to make asynchronous communication possible? Asynchronous meaning communication that is not taking place in, you know, actual real time, like a phone call or a real time Teams message. Like, I know, I know on, the, on the engineering side, you have this thing with cards, project management, where you move the card ahead and stuff like that. What about for the, the the content workers and the marketing people and the non-engineering types? How do they asynchronously communicate? Well, the the answer that everyone has uh, is, is Slack. Um, so we we definitely use Slack ex uh, a lot here. Um, th that's really great for the. Um, conversational history that you can keep, the searchability of that history, uh, and the way you can segment conversations based on the groups that they're intended for. Uh, so that's a big part of it. We also use Notion, uh, which allows us to have more persistent content. So as I like to say, conversations in Slack, truth in Notion. Um, and that way, and we also, we do bridge you mentioned uh, the project management kinds of software um, that we use to track our own work. And it is really critical that you set up systems and processes so 
just in the process of doing your work, you're automatically recording what you're doing. Just, you know, you drag a card from one thing to the next and everyone knows where you are. You write a comment and everyone knows where to go to find it. So bridging that that project status with the source of truth that came out of it, like in Notion, uh, is a really critical piece. And so having very consistent working agreements and processes where we do have a, we know where to go to find that truth from any conversation that might have come out of it. So people aren't having to rely on, uh, you know, what we call uh, tribal knowledge or just who was in the in-group when the conversation happened. And then, you know, 60 days later, everyone's forgotten how the conversation got to the decision it did. So making sure that people know, oh, well, that was in the payroll group. So the payroll group has this notion section. And when they got done with their work, they recorded the final decision here. And oh, look, there it is right there. So making sure those formats are consistent and uh, the team operations are consistent there are really important. All right, can I just quickly jump back to um, AI, generative AI? So generative AI is the buzzword of everything. You, you can't talk about anything in this world right now without talking about generative AI, whether it's tech or not tech. So, and it's it's massively overhyped. It's tons of problems. But it's also got tons of opportunities. Um, so, and there's tons of flavors of it. So how are you, how are you using or experimenting with it? Or are you, or are you to some degree intentionally avoiding it because of the safety and inaccuracy and risk problems with it? Or are you using your own small language models as opposed to large language models? Can you talk about how you're using GenI or might use it internally or externally? Yeah, you you really don't want to avoid it um, because things are happening so quickly. But it is very much one of these things where you want to be on the right point of the adoption curve when you start making your investments. So if you go too early, you might bet on the wrong horse and, and end up in the wrong place. If you are too late, then you lose your competitive advantage. And so there are really two pieces in terms of how we explore this. Um, if you look at generative AI implementation, you can take what exists out there through a, a large LLM company and just do some prompt engineering here and there, but for the most part, use what's there. And that's a very low expense, low barrier to entry kind of approach. And then you can move more toward um, training it, at least in a, in a more heavier weight way. So putting in, you know, using some of the more advanced features where you can give it 32 kilobytes of content in your prompts or something like that. Um, and then, you can go all the way to the point at which you're building your entire large language models from the ground up, which is $50, $100 million kind of investment. And so, and then within the company itself, you have two areas. You can be using AI to run company operations. So, you know, generating content in the marketing group or uh, generating code in engineering for review, those kinds of things. Uh, and you can also look at AI in the product itself. And so I think that the smart thing to do right now is to be in both of those areas, to be on the use what's out there, experiment with what's out there, find out what you do know and you don't know, and try to come up with an inspirational idea uh, as 
things progress so quickly, um, if your inspiration hits at the right time, then when it's time to make an investment into a more contextual um, training of a large language model, um, you'll be ready and understanding how to do that. And so you do that um, both in the product and within the company. So there's a lot that we're doing internally uh, for content generation, for, for mapping knowledge about employment out in the world into encoding that into rules inside of our internal rules engine. And more importantly, I think, is this inspiration that we've had because global employment is so complicated and you have to give the right answers. There's a difference between discriminative AI or LLMs or rules engines where you have the right answer and generative AI where you have a probabilistic answer. And using that probabilistic thing to create natural language interaction, but not relying on it to create correct responses. Yeah, I I, I, th I find that interesting. And I don't think I've heard people like kind of differentiate it that way before. Um, and so what would you say is like what you uh, Oyster is more prone to, right? Are you using the probabilistic perhaps like within the company and then the deterministic for like your customers and outside of the company? That's exactly right. It, it's this whole idea of the person in the middle. And when we're doing things internally, there's a person in the middle reviewing it before it really goes out into the real world. And then whenever something is going to go out without a person in the middle, um, that's when we want to have the, the deterministic rules engine uh, giving the answers. The real trick there is making sure, and this I think is where our inspiration is right now, is figuring out how we can create those natural language interactions with the knowledge base and make sure that um, essentially we take control of the user's interaction. It's as if our rules engine were the person in the middle. Um, so we can make it an automatic, low risk, high accuracy, high consistency, natural language interaction. Can I just say that I, I like the person in the middle better than human in the loop? Oh, yeah. um, I like it. It's more uh, accurate and it's less of a cliche because um, I'm always, Esther knows I'm always taking out cliches, trying to <laughs> stories. And human in the loop is becoming a cliche <laughs> because what's the loop, you know? <laughs> but anyway, um, I'm sure there's a little bit of a, a shade of nuance difference between human in the middle and human in the loop, but um, pretty close. So can we take a side tour and ask you how you came to work at Oyster? which uh, was a startup and what in your life and work experience ex prepared you for the work you're doing now. And don't limit your answers to uh, Salesforce and Oracle. Also talk about your um, other, other creative endeavors. Yeah, that's a really good question. Uh, and like any interesting story, it's a long story and I'll try to shorten it. Um, so I didn't start my career in technology. I got a degree in economics from Johns Hopkins. Um, in the background, I was always doing things like music, writing, um, graphic design. Uh, I did a lot of creative things. And when I got out of school, being a natural introvert like you, Esther, um, I, I knew that as a human in the world, I needed to learn how to not be introverted uh, when needed. And so I got into sales, uh, specifically financial planning. 
and went through sales training. And I did that for a couple of years. I learned a lot, uh, became, you know, a, a technical person who could talk, which has turned out to be a huge advantage in my career. Um, but I, I always found myself in all of these things I did, always adopting technology to help me do the work. So um, I was creating complex financial models and automation in Excel for selling financial planning products. And I was creating presentations with graphic design with background music that I had been writing. So I was always putting those things together with the computer. Uh, and I, I realized after a couple of years in sales that I wanted to be, uh, that computers were everywhere in what I was doing. So I got the, you know, learn visual basic in 21 days book. I'd go work out in the morning and between every lift, I would read another page of the book. And once I was through that, I created some demo programs, I learned Java, C++, and uh, it was just the right time in the industry. It was 1997, 1998. If you could breathe, you could get hired uh, in technology. And I qualified. <laughs> so I got right into the dot-com wave. Uh, I was in the startup scene in Boulder, sold a company, a startup that I had to BEA Systems. And then through BEA and Oracle and Salesforce, had the opportunity to just jump from one role to another, learn all the different technologies, try to build mental models and wisdom uh, that could apply across use cases and technologies and, and different roles in the companies. So, you know, and everything I succeeded at was never something they would have hired me for off the street, but I was always there when it needed to be done and had the opportunity uh, to be the person doing it. Uh, so as you mentioned, I went from individual contributor to management and back for many years, did a lot of things in the background, um, uh, did mobile work on my own, wrote a top 10 iPhone app back uh, in the early days, uh, 2011, uh, when it was easier to do something like that. Um, and then at Salesforce and Oracle, it was really an opportunity to see and contrast that with startups and understand all of the supporting infrastructure that goes into doing that kind of work, um, all the way from sales and product marketing to, you know, and the go-to-market motion to product strategy and technology strategy. And those are really great companies to learn, you know, the end state that an innovation curve goes toward. And it really got to the point, you know, when I started at Salesforce, there were 15,000 people. And when I left, there were 73,000. And that was in seven years. And, you know, I really wanted to get back into that quick iteration world of entrepreneurial work that Oyster gave me the opportunity to do. And so being able to like the, the analogy I have is Salesforce provides the road and you build the car. Uh, Oyster, you get to build the road at the same time you're building the car. And uh, for all the good and bad things that can happen innovating that quickly, it's just a much more dynamic environment that's more suited to me. And so having this opportunity was just incredible. I would also say like you've been able to go leave through different companies. You know, you were able to figure out what does a global workforce mean? That's true. In fact, at Salesforce, we were... Um, hiring so many people in India. We actually had not only several offices there, the the whole recruiting process, the whole time zone management process, the whole asynchronous communication process. Uh, how do you have teams across all these different places? Um, how do you build teams, camaraderie, 
culturally, all of those things we were doing just like gangbusters for the the last couple of years that I was there, hiring over a hundred people uh, very very rapidly with plans to hire more and more. Uh, so that kind of thing uh, was a huge opportunity that Salesforce provided, and they were very very good at it. Also, didn't you work at um, Salesforce.org for a while? The uh, the nonprofit um, part of Salesforce, and they have nonprofit cloud, I believe. And um, how did that prepare you for your work with Oyster? And does that fit in with, I think, what you see as Oyster's social uh, mission as well? Yeah, uh, that's (laughs) that's a really important part of the work that I do. It's very, very important to me. And before I started working for Salesforce.org, I would always feel like I needed to make sure, you know, okay, so I would create an algorithm that made it better for a financial transaction for banks. You know, I would be, sometimes that algorithm is used in good ways. Sometimes it's used perhaps in not as good ways. And I was very far away from the impact of the work I was doing. When I was able to join .org, um, the specific project I started on was Philanthropy Cloud, which was a platform to allow employers to enable their employees to give and volunteer to nonprofits all over the world. And it suddenly became, you know, when people asked me what I did, I, I didn't have to say, oh, well, I, I do this and then I volunteer. I was able to say, I'm, I'm doing both things at the same time. And not only that, I can see directly the people that are being impacted in the work that I was doing. And that was so fulfilling <laughs> that when I got the opportunity to have more of the .org portfolio, such as nonprofit cloud and education cloud, and a piece even of the net zero cloud work, um, it, it was inspiring to come to work every day and know that the work I was doing was having a multiplicative effect. And something that's unique about Oyster is that we are a a B Corp, um, which means um, we're recognized for our commitment to impact through our business model. It binds our mission to our bylaws. Um, So we provide provide training and, and employment opportunities to underserved communities as a way to promote diversity, inclusion, economic mobility. Um, you know, being able to, like, for example, we have 13 people from Nigeria, in Nigeria, working in our company uh, across all different functions. Oh, well, there you go. <laughs> so all different functions. We have uh, these great people that otherwise we wouldn't have had access to. Our two, two of our greatest designers on our design team are in Ghana. We've, we've discovered a secret treasure. I hope no one finds it. Actually, I hope everyone finds out. Uh, the design community in Ghana is incredibly strong. So knowing every day the people I interact with are people that are uh, being positively impacted by our company and we in turn are being positively impacted back it's a virtuous circle uh that's just an incredible inspiration when i come to work every day to know that i'm part of that being like able to i guess working also in in terms of your past and working in like i guess i don't want to call it hr but would you say that you also had the chance to see the way that ai technology grew can you speak a little bit about that 
In terms of like, did it change? Especially because you went from seventeen thousand when you were Salesforce to seven three seventy three, right? So did that was that did AI play a role in that at all in terms of hiring process or whatever? I didn't really see AI com- interacting that way, um, and I'll tell you one reason why I think this is true is because it's so important in the HR community to um, hire fairly, hire for diversity, equity, inclusion, having processes for belonging. And one of the big issues, at least historically, in AI or um, machine learning types of artificial intelligence is they're only as good as the data they have. And there is not enough data capturing the experience of underserved and underrepresented groups. And so there's a huge amount of risk if you try to have guidance and from systems like that in the HR space. Uh, it's incredibly important that there be a lot of intention around how you approach that. And so historically, I haven't wanted to use it and haven't used it. Lately, there has been um, more of a push around being able to um, record and transcribe, for example, an interview transcript to be looking for um, any sort of exclusionary um, kinds of language, anything that may have biased uh, or be indicating that bias is occurring. And so now we are having an opportunity to you know, level the playing field uh, and make things more equitable. Uh, but historically, it's been something I've been very hesitant to, in, to believe in. Yeah, it certainly is pretty controversial um, using AI in hiring. Um, one of our writers, Patrick Thibodeau, has done a lot of work on that. Um, but um, let's switch gears again to uh, your new AI chatbot called Pearl, um, which is new for you guys. And Pearl is something an oyster makes um, sometimes, <laughs> if you're lucky. Uh, so um, what is Pearl going to do for your users and uh, how does it work? I'm super excited about this because this really is our first public foray into having AI interacting with uh, the potential customers of the Oyster platform. So um, it's a way to, you know, if you look at our our public website, we have a lot of open source knowledge. We have the reef all around distributed work and and how to help your company become successful. And it's very important to us to continue building curiosity and enthusiasm in the in the knowledge worker industry around global employment. And the unfortunate thing is that global employment can feel kind of like a dry subject. Distributed work can feel rather dry. And when you're the way you're conveying information to people is static texts and articles and help centers and the occasional uh, press release about the subject or you know LinkedIn feeds. We you can try to breathe life into it, but until you can really make a very natural interaction, you can't really breathe the amount of life and curiosity and, and create that catalyst and uh, what they call it the hockey stick curve of interest. 
um, to to really generate that explosive level of interest in global hiring and distributed teams. So Pearl is uh, a conversational AI that answers questions about global hiring and remote work regulations, um, taking our wealth of knowledge around this subject, around 180 countries in the world, um, turning it into a conversational interface. And so people can come to our website and they can ask very specific questions and essentially have a conversation uh, that is fed and trained by the static text that we have, our global hiring guides and our remote work regulations. So they can learn about benefits, policies, taxes, competitive hiring, rather than having to search through all of this stuff, um, being able to actually have a conversation with the, the Pearl. And what that also does is that allows us like I said, you know, making sure we're learning how people might want to use AI, making sure that we can uh, internally and as part of our product jump onto this adoption curve at the right point in time to optimize how we do it. This is a way to see how people do interact for that kind of knowledge and capture that information, um, enrich the knowledge, keep building the conversation externally and optimize the way that we build the technology internally and as part of the product experience itself. So again, we can have the most simple and human-like interaction and still be getting consistent and accurate advice and answers to people in their hiring journeys. How do you use prompt engineering in your platform? That's a good question. And that's exactly the, I think, the inspiration that we have right now. One of the big problems with generative AI that everyone knows about is the tendency it can hallucinate. And we've seen examples of people um, wresting control away from the intent of the generative AI programmers, uh, you know, and, and convincing the generative AI to do all sorts of, and say all sorts of awful things. And all of this is around the prompt engineering. And if you give an individual the ability to have a direct conversation with a generative AI, you give up control of what might happen. And you're at the mercy of OpenAI or Bard or whomever uh, in terms of how they try to control that. What we're doing here is we are intercepting the question of the individual. This is what we're doing, working on internally, is intercepting the context and the question of the individual and turning that into a prompt that we control. And being able to figure out from that, essentially we're telling uh, our LLM here is the API into our structured knowledge base. Make your best guess which part of our structured knowledge base this question is aimed at. And then we go to our actual correct answers. Uh, we generate static text, and then we create a prompt for uh, the LLM with our statically generated text that we control. And the text itself is extremely robotic. It's extremely precise, extremely correct. And we say to the LLM, make this into a natural language statement that loses zero accuracy and doesn't add anything else. And we've been able to, by controlling the prompts at the front end and at the back end, 
um, create a really effective, you know, like I said, uh, rules engine in the middle instead of a person in the middle uh, interaction where the worst thing that happens, which isn't bad at all, really, is that you might guess incorrectly about what question they're asking. But it's very obvious to them that you might have answered the wrong question. So being able to get that um, control the prompts uh, is key toward removing bias and ensuring that an accurate answer is returned to the individual and that hallucinations don't occur. Okay, so I wanted to talk, ask you to talk a little bit more about uh, being a B Corp. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm, I'm pretty, I'm really interested in that topic. And I just heard a podcast about a, a ski boot manufacturer in Italy who is in the process of becoming a B Corp and how rigorous that is and how much time it takes and how intensive it is. And did you form as a B Corp or did you become a B Corp um, recently? That is a great question. And we had the intention to be a B Corp from the very beginning. And it took until, um, I think it was just a couple of months ago when we finally got the approval and became registered as a B Corp. Uh, There's so much that you have to do to like I said, it has to be part of your bylaws. It has to be part of the way that your company operates. Um, how are you going to be measuring impact? Um, what are the different vectors that you're you're looking to achieve? It took over two years to get there. Um, and it took a lot of demonstrating, like I said before at the beginning of the podcast, walking the walk and talking the talk. Um, so we've always been measuring things like, um, our goal to reach, um, you know, it's wealth transfer basically from uh, San Francisco to emerging markets. Uh, so, for example, in December of 2022, we exceeded our goal to uh, have annual payments of $50 million into emerging markets. And we sent $53.6 million in 2022. Uh, we have 28% of our users are in emerging countries. Um, we have uh, you know, we, we did an analysis with Salesforce Ventures, which is uh, one of our investors, um, and they have a social impact research arm uh, through 60 decibels. And what we found is that 74% of individuals report an increase in income. 64% say their ability to support their family is very much increased. Uh, 60% report improved quality of life, and that's 74% for women. Uh, and 60% reported job access to their foreign employers have approved, improved. So all of these things have been the intention from day one. And as part of becoming B Corp certified, those are the things that helped us get there. And it was, it's so easy as I'm sure everyone has seen to try to look like you care and try to look like you are making an impact. Uh, and I think that's why there's so much scrutiny that goes into becoming a B Corp. And you can't become a B Corp if you're not serious about it. And uh, we have been from day one and, and it shows. That's nice. Like hearing those statistics is really nice. Um, can you just say what are the similarities between how you structure your own distributor workforce and the customers that you have and how help them build their distributor workforce. 
The similarities, I think, go toward, again, the walking the walk and talking the talk. So everybody has a different situation, like, and they have different parameters that they're operating within. So, you know, different countries they might be looking at, different situations the people are in in those countries. Uh, it, But what we're doing internally is we have a strategy on how we hire. We want to hire competitively. We want to be able to make sure that we compensate um, in emerging markets even more aggressively than we would compensate in, in established markets. Um, we want to you know, stack the deck toward that, that mission. Um, the same kinds of knowledge base that allows us to do that internally allows us to help our customers figure the same things out. What is your hiring strategy? Where are you looking to hire? What's important to you? What are your timeframes you're looking at? What would be most competitive uh, for you in terms of the skill sets that you need, in terms of the levels of employees that you need to hire, how many you need to hire, when you need to hire them? We're always asking ourselves those same questions and being able to work with our, we take that process and that learning of how we answer those questions for ourselves. Uh, and we apply those toward how we advise and partner with our customers to do the same thing. I do have one quick follow up and that has to do with, um, regulation, right? How do you, uh, I guess juggle it, especially being in the U S and this, um, there's so many rules about hiring and who you can hire. And then you guys are hiring all over the world and even working with customers that hire all over the world. It's it is the the single most important thing to figure out from a technology standpoint and from a a value standpoint how to do this because like for example if you want to generate automated agreements for hiring and you need to figure out what the probation period is for a given country like for example in Greece it's 12 months no matter what in Romania, if you're hiring a permanent or temporary, it can change. Executive or non-executive, it can change anywhere from 30 to 120 days. If you're hiring in France, you have temporary and permanent, executive, non-executive. And also, if non-executive, you have mid or junior level to consider. And then it's between one and four months, depending on where in these long decision trees you get to. And there is always an incentive to take a shortcut of and you have companies that are impatient they want to be reassured they want to go in a straight line to get the thing done that they need to get done and you either you have a choice to be a transactional partner where you might take shortcuts and say oh good enough and you know maybe this isn't as compliant as it should be but you know what we're just trying to make you happy and we're doing it cheap Oyster doesn't do that. We do the opposite. We're a strategic partner. We want it to be correct. We want to be your partner in the long term. We want to help you do the right thing. And so the customers that we have, the market we serve, the way that we do the work we do and the technology we're building to solve these problems are all focused on making sure that we're doing it the right way. When you talk about your social mission as a B Corp, and creating jobs and helping create jobs and employment and stuff like that in emerging markets are you 
is it part of your mission to pay competitive way to have your help your customers pay competitive wages in each country or higher than competitive wages and how do you use technology to to uh, measure that we have a that's a great question and like i i said earlier it's it is important as a strategic partner to our customers that we understand the um, the overall long-term strategy that they have. And we definitely, for our own hiring, we want to make sure that we pay more than the midpoint uh, for emerging markets. Uh, we bias higher pay for emerging markets than we do for, um, for non-emerging markets internally when we hire. Um, I think that there is, over time, people are going to find that that was not only the right thing to do from a social standpoint, but the right thing to do from a competitive standpoint. Um, we are proving, I think, with the, the people we have in our company and the way we're working, that there is, even though you may be feeling like you're compensating above midpoint for people in the emerging markets, you are actually getting more even than that from these people. You're starting to level the playing field and you're getting access to a broader talent pool. And so it's definitely part of the conversation with our customers is to say, hey, this is our experience and if here is the data. And to let our customers, you know, make sure that they're making the right decision for their time frame and, and what they need to do. Uh, but over time, and so that data, that data does give them knowledge of what is a competitive wage. What's the 50th percentile for hiring someone in Romania and a knowledge worker at this level, non-executive, et cetera. We can give them what the midpoint is that's competitive to make sure that they're, they're, you know, they know how to make a competitive offer. Um, and we can also show them that if you go above competitive, our experience has been that you get more people better people, more diversity, more loyalty. You, you get a lot more for that. And so paying more than midpoint in emerging markets is a smart thing to do for a hundred different reasons. And so that's part of that partnership and part of that conversation that we have. Okay. So not to end on a down note, but we've <laughs> talked a lot about hiring and um, employment, but severance is also part of employment. Uh, firing is part mm -hmm. of employment around the world. And I noticed on your on your website um, and reef that you also have severance requirements in the different countries. So um, to me, that's important because it's doing it in a fair way, not just terminating someone. So is that is it, have you used technology to figure out ways to communicate that? Yes, uh, we have. You know, I talk about higher pay and care through the life cycle part of care is offboarding. It's making sure that you're offboarding in a compliant way. If you're letting one person go or you're planning to let a group of people go, making sure that you understand the regulations in all of the different countries. For example, there are some countries where if you eliminate a role, you are not allowed to, allowed to hire back into that role for six months. Um, and it's important for the customers to understand that even when they're just hiring initially, that when you're hiring in this country, this, these are the things that you need to take into account. When you have a mix of people across all sorts of countries 
and different countries filling the same role, then the questions become even more complex. Uh, how how do you make sure that you are um, compliantly, respectfully, uh, all of those things, uh, managing the offboarding of your people? And how do you predict the cost of offboarding as well? So we have an offboarding cost function as well that we can supply and that we provide to our customers so they can, they can predict and understand that too. Because it is true that the average knowledge worker um, stays with your company for two to three years. And so you, if you're going to be around for more than two to three years, you need to be accounting for those costs and planning for that at the very beginning. That, that is pretty cool, even though it's a technically, it could be a depressing subject, but it's actually not because um, leaving is part of, you know, mobility in the workforce is part of the workforce. So anyway, thank you for, um, thank you so much for being with us. It was really fascinating. And um, thank you, Michael. We really appreciate it. So to our listeners, you can you can uh, check out this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon, Google, every other major podcast platform, including Podbean, and go to Tech Target News for more info. Thank you so much, Michael. Thank you, Sean. Thank you, Esther. I really appreciated your time today. Thanks for listening to today's podcast. Please remember to share on your favorite social media platform and leave a review. For more on today's topic, please check out the Tech Target News website.